0: welcome back y'all to real ballers read we have a very special guest this is actually one of our first invites we ever had to the podcast she was working on a book though the forthcoming why willie may thornton matters and this book is so special and see is just such a special person, DJ, scholar, archivist, Crate Digger, Lene Denise. She is what I see as the African diaspora personified both in her love of all things music, in her travels, in her studies, in her reading, in, in her fashion. Wow, man, What? how did I miss that? And just is someone who I look up to in many ways, and I'm just so excited to have her on the show. Welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. I don't want the guests out there to imagine me wearing like you know a dashiki and like, <laughs> like,
2: like yeah. there's
1: nothing wrong with the dashiki. I was wearing dashikis in the 90s, but I love that you referenced diaspora and fashion. What up, people? Mm. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be able to be in community with real ballers who read.
3: Mm. Yeah, thank Thank you. Thank you. As Miles was saying, we're so excited to have you here. You know, uh, I got to visit him a lot at Stanford while we were in undergrad. And he said that by far your class and your like lecturing style, your style of teaching was the best teaching he had ever witnessed. And so even just vicariously, like hearing that and feeling the chills that he had for your style and just your Mm -hmm. resonance as a person uh, was really exciting. So I just wanted to echo again how grateful we are to have you here, Lene. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
3: Yeah. 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 Um, Real Ballers Read was something that our mom told us growing up. She wanted to make sure that we always took pride and confidence in ourselves as readers along with being athletes and artists and all the other things that we were doing as kids. So we really do see Real Ballers Read as a way to honor her and as well honor all of the multi-dimensional aspects of ourselves, which is something that we think you are the the epitome of, as Miles has been saying. But in your talk with Dream Hampton uh, just a few days ago, you were mentioning that you didn't really start with an obsessive love of reading, right? So could you just take us back to your childhood and what kinds of things you were interested in and how you found reading or reading found you? Like, what's the story there?
1: First of all, that's a brilliant place to start. And thank you for tuning in to the conversation I had earlier with Dream Hampton. Yeah, I made that comment, you know, and thinking about how I did not grow up loving to read. And here I am, the author of a book. Right. Um, I think that what's interesting to me is having taught at institutions like Stanford and Williams College and UCLA and meeting students, particularly students of color who were super sharp and who I had imagined had been groomed to kind of be at such an institution. Right. And I was just really impressed by a lot of times, you know, their their critical analysis um present company included you know Miles was talking about me as a professor but quite honestly much of that class was about the rapport it was about a well established dialogue and not so much between teacher and student as much as it was like a community of thinkers that i was guiding know with some of the resources that I had um Mm, which mm -hmm. was called the black 80s the black music 80s right yeah so you know I grew up as an mtv kid in the 1980s and was heavily reliant on this kind of new video culture right visual culture visual musical culture so I was in love with videos and yell mtv raps and vh1 soul and, and then watching documentaries about you know behind the life behind the music and was just like oh I would prefer to use my time this way instead of the time it takes. And at this time, like, what do we do? What do we have to do to to buy a book or to read a book in the eighties? Right. It's like going to a bookstore, going to a library. But now in the 1980s, there's this new culture based on instant gratification, right? The A way to kind of read differently. And so while I say that I did not enjoy reading, you know, quite literally in terms of picking up books, because I felt like at times it would just take too much space, too much time in my life. I realized that in watching and studying those videos that I was engaged in a kind of reading. Right. Like and I to this day remember many of those documentaries and those documentaries are part of what informed my practice. So I guess I would say I did not discover my love for reading literature, reading theory, reading, you know, Reading in physical books until um, I read Asada Shakur for the first time in my senior year in high school in like 1993. Then I was like, oh, oh, oh. And then shortly after that, I did the whole like, you know, you, I just want to say like hood literature, you know, <laughs> reading list. That's like right. the hood reading list. You right. read like, Asada Shakur, you read, um. Of course, Malcolm's autobiography. You read, depending you know, on where you are in the world. Elijah Muhammad's How to Eat to Live, you know? Like,
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the hell of the white pale horse. Like, there's a whole thing. And some of that literature comes out of prison culture, right?
2: Yeah. It's mm.
1: to think about the OGs who returned from prison, not just built up with muscles from being on the yard, but having read a whole damn lot, right? And then learning about how Malcolm's transformation was rooted and reading. So, you know, but I, I came to that um later on in my life as a late teen. And so, yeah, that's what I mean by not having a love for reading physical books. I will say, and I'll end it here, that when my dad would say things like, hey, why don't you turn off that TV? You've been watching it for hours, read a book. It also felt like punishment to me, like, hey, don't tell me what medium I should be engaging in, <laughs> you know, like, but Hey, I had to listen. I wasn't paying bills, and I was like, "Well, then let me open the liner notes to a tribe called Quest's albums. I'm listening to it daily. Let me see who they sampled, or let me see what Q-Tips real name is, or let me see right. Let me learn more about the music that I'm listening to closely and the videos that I'm watching. Let me read about these artists in the context of their own words or the context of the the album's concept. Right, and so I would say that my first critical reading practice that was designed by my own passion was me reading liner notes closely
3: mm. Mm. yeah that that is so incredible to hear, I think, because it's really revealing something for me in our own story as well is that I feel like for any black person who reads so much of the the thrust and the momentum was very much like cultural like it it wasn't something. Where you like got assigned a book as homework in school, and then you were like, "Wait, I like this!" Like it was always in the edges, uh, or in the, the quote-unquote edges of like childhood and your experience until you realize just how much it allows you to plug in to yourself and into like black culture diasporically, right? Um, that that's something that I just really resonated with there as well too, uh with you talking about just growing up in video culture, like I even read Why Willie Mae Thornton Matters, and it feels already like a documentary. It already feels like a mixtape, and it really does kind of just play with like, the question of like, what even is the difference between reading, listening, and watching, or other forms of kind of how you consume information. Um, Because at the end of the day, there's something that you're showing us around how it's how you string things together and what you pay attention to that almost matters more. Um, So do you see those kinds of clear distinctions as an artist, as yourself, whether it be with like reading, watching, listening or even other kinds of art forms?
1: I mean, I'm caught up in the brilliance of this question.
0: Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. That's that's crazy. crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Like the question itself is a reading of sorts, right? Like the the question itself is about your reading practice. And so I'm like, hey, who cares about what? Let's let's hear more about (laughs) move by like reading, you know, like a, a, a solid reading practice. Right. And so, yeah, what's great is that that question makes me feel heard on the page right? Like it makes me feel heard on the page. And I had writer's blog for like two years. I was like, what do you mean write a book? What do you mean write a book about someone's life? What kind of responsibility? What did I sign up for? What can I do? Shit, I signed a contract. What am I? Woo! Right? The responsibility and the reading I know it would take and have to take in order for me to, you know, to to complete this project was another deep reckoning of what reading means to me, because here's the deal. If you're writing a biography about a blues woman by the name of Willie Mae Thornton, then you're listening to all her albums. You're listening to the albums of her contemporaries. You're reading her liner notes. You're reading about the blues. You're reading about Texas R&B. You're reading about Juneteenth. You're reading about the Chitlin circuit. You're listening to Little Richard interviews. You're playing the music of Ray Charles. You're reading the books of a Mary Baraka, right? Like, so you cannot write the book without a deep, you know, listening, viewing, writing, reading practice. It is an interdisciplinary project. And interdependent, in fact, is a more accurate way to describe the different ways I was called to read so that I could read this woman's life and tell a story. right? So, um, yeah, I'm so glad that you picked up what I'm assuming is the blend where I dwell because that third space, like what happens when my life, Willie May's life in the history of blue scholarship, comes together, am I going to be able to craft something that honors all of those individual voices, but shows how interrelated they are, you know? And so that Mm -hmm. skill, I think, comes from my practice as a DJ and what I have learned about listening to two things at once, right? And, And what I've learned about presenting information that is blurred between the lines, right? So you don't know in this book, where sociology ends and where musicology begins and where personal narrative ends and where music criticism begins. Right. right. And so, and that's black life. That's black cultural life. Those blurry lines that we live on.
0: Mm. Mm. I mean, just hearing you talk though, now really hearts back on the point for me of you saying just how important it is for black, People to write black biographies, um, you know, especially when you're ta- talking about all the white men that were ghost writing for the blues artists, that does feel strange. And it did. It did seem like you did have some gratitude to the Michael Spork uh, biography in the book, and that was honest. But yeah, it's just to be able to bring all of your life, bring all of that co- context to the page. And the way that you did is just a work of art. And I'm curious, how did all of the other literary texts, you know, Color Purple or the Neva Smitherman, how did those rise to the surface of the Willie Mae*? May? Was it during the writing of the project that you read these things or it was just a rereading of them through listening to her work, if, if, if that kind of makes
1: sense? Yeah, it makes total sense. I love that yeah. you brought rereading yeah. I like made the assumption that I'm rereading, right mm-hmm. like hey, thank you for that compliment <laughs> <No. Right? laughs> like, like um because okay, so good so I want to start by saying something that I really want to eventually explore or maybe pay attention to, which is what black people created between March twenty twenty and let's just say march twenty twenty two that black pandemic renaissance what happened when we were forced to be quiet and sit still what kind of music i mean one thing that comes out of that is what beyonce's renaissance that is sweeping the damn nation in a way that she hasn't before people listen i don't know if you all have had a chance oh, to watch form you know like i find it i found it to be incredibly useful um which was a a series kind of Based on the Beyonce beehive and perhaps Mm -hmm. questions around fandom and a commitment to it, maybe like an unhealthy relationship with Beyonce, and they didn't name her, but it was very much so.
2: (laughs) Yeah.
3: It was like, who else would it be? (laughs)
1: It's like, who, literally, which is an interesting way to force us to think about it, right? Mm. Okay, you can put in person A. We all know that there's (laughs) one. We're right. like, so the, the very right, but I mean, so what Beyonce created, you know, during that time period, like what was created, I'm curious about what was written. Films that were written, maybe not necessarily made because of the limitations of the pandemic. Willie May was written in the context of the quietest time in my 48 year or at that time, 46 year life. I spent 46 years on this planet having never heard that kind of quiet having never been required to sit still right and and to only have my thoughts and to only have this woman's story in my hands and so it was as if everything that i read and watched and listened to and heard everything that i learned up until that moment went into this book and it makes you realize like oh you know like perhaps we are called to do certain things and we are prepared and we are led by that per- that preparation is informed by our curiosity i was curious about Geneva smitherman i was curious about the fact that she was from detroit i was curious about the fact that her language her explanation of black english shows up in the in the in the in the, in the music of of aretha franklin another detroiter who i also write about in the book and i was moved by the fact that she broke down the difference between what white folks may have in mind when they're thinking about the term big mama and what black folks have in mind. Right. And I was thinking about the fact that I once saw an interview with Alice Walker, who was, yeah, in a conversation with Charlie Rose. And she was talking about some of the compromises she had to make to kind of take the color purple from the page to Hollywood, one of which was huge to me because she described the fact that in her mind, suge avery was a thick woman right she was a thick woman but in hollywood's imagination and recreation um and representation of suge avery she is you know the size of the average person who we see in hollywood films right that we don't even see a you know a, a diverse range of body types right and so that was interesting because i was like well hold the hell on it seems like suge avery is a willie Mae thornton or you right. know a Bessie Smith or many of these black blues women who had different bodies. So, yeah, I just want to say that that pandemic quiet made it so that I could access everything I had learned up into that point to bring this story to fruition.
2: Mm. I love that. Yeah.
3: So along with um, the quiet of that time was also the grief. I'm thinking in particular of uh, bell hooks and Greg Tate passing away and you know, right, bringing it back to that, that community of thinkers, I think for us at that moment, you were for sure kind of like a, a guide as well, even virtually for even navigating all the grief of those losses. And so I would love to, I'd love to hear uh, you talk more just on the role that bell hooks and Greg Tate have played for you even after their passing uh, in that time of you know, quiet and pandemic and also starting to transform and alchemize your own book?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm so glad that you brought up the word grief. I mean, because the whole thing about that quiet, right, is about, I want to say the activity of ghosts in a way, you know, like there was a haunting because we were living in a time where the West was forced to to reckon with like, the failure of capitalism, right? We were being forced to see that at the end of the day, a decision was going to be made to maintain that system, right? And that that decision was going to be to like, have to almost, you know, make peace with the death of millions in order to put people back to work, right? Like, so the grief is, is, is multi-layered, right? Like, It makes me think of the work of Arundhati Roy, who wrote an incredible essay at the beginning of the pandemic called The Pandemic is a Portal. And I kept thinking and sitting with that word portal and grief and portal and ancestors and portal and restless bodies who who sometimes died, you know, in the name of capitalism, right? Like that we needed those frontline workers so that we can get our groceries and that we weren't willing to give them the protection they needed. And, right. And so, yeah, that grief was there. And I want to say that maybe what it did was inspired me to be even more focused on getting a story out. Right. That like is about my contribution to all of these things that I love, Black music, Black women, Black literature, Black Southern culture, Black West Coast culture, Black diasporic culture. It was like, well, then, damn, we don't know what tomorrow looks like. We can't even be future-oriented, right? So we are so rooted in the now, right? And, and we are surrounded by these ghosts and these restless spirits that are dying in vain and dying in the name of capitalism. What can I do to contribute, you know? um that's one thing and then you know so one of those things that came up for me was yeah revisiting bell hooks's work you know always you know always greg tate and i had a relationship where like i would text him like once every few months to ask him what he was reading and he would always say like three or four books and um that was always interesting to me because we would have hours and hours. We we could talk for hours about music, about literature, about so many things. But it was always reading three to four books at a time, which quite honestly is the only way, say, for example, you can write a book, I think, and try to be as detailed and factual as possible. So I was like, I'm drawing on Greg Tate's reading practice, right? I am reading, yes, Willie May's biography. I obviously reread like four times, right? Like, did I get these facts right? But at the same time, I was reading about Black women in the blues in general, books by Angela Davis. And I was reading, you know, also about the history of the music industry and its relationship to this almost like, you know, predatorial, ethnographic Uh, culture that comes out of academia, right? That there were all these white men who were entering prisons and recording Black men and women and selling those recordings and building the industry based on this kind of, you know, exploitation of people who were oftentimes wrongly imprisoned, right? That basically the prison system was a way to extend not just the plantation model, but also the sharecropping model. So now I have to read about plantation politics and the sharecropping model. And then you know, Fannie Lou Hamer pops up and now I'm thinking about blues epistemology and I'm reading Clive Woods and I'm that right? So I was forced to read multiple books at the same time, like Greg Tate taught me. And then I was forced to have a kind of analysis, right? That my investment in this book is not just about telling the details, sharing the dates of when she performed where and what album came out when, but placing Willie May in the context of what it meant to be like, a Black woman who was read as queer, a Black woman who refused to honor gender norms, a Black woman who was Southern and from Alabama, a Black woman who was functionally illiterate, a Black woman who was a multi instrumentalist, you know, like all of these things. Her, she was dynamic. So I had to have a dynamic reading and writing and thinking practice, which I learned from the Honorable Sister Blues academic, Bell Hooks, right? Because it was Bell Hooks who was like, no, I'm not just going to read Spike Lee. I'm not going to just watch Madonna's video. I'm going to offer an incisive reading and watching of it. And I'm going to make you feel a little bit uncomfortable because I am courageous enough to say what many others won't. So, you know, mm-hmm. even naming something and calling out white biographers, for example, and calling out these white men who have fancied themselves the authorities on black music and creating genres of music and saying that they came up with these with the names of these genres of music. Right. And those were ways that Bill and Greg informed my practice before and after their death. I will say that they both knew that I was writing this book. I was a friend mm. of Bell Hooks as well as Greg, but I had the opportunity to visit Bell Hooks several times after I was vaccinated, and she made sure of that, and I was, and that was easy for me to honor. And I would talk to her about writing books, and I was like, I can't write. She was like, girl, I wrote 30 books. You can write one. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's crazy <Yeah>. that's hilarious <laughs> so
1: I, got called, listen, I got called to task and then Greg right. was like oh good I can't <laughs> wait for you to finish Greg was like perfect I can't wait for you to finish this book I was like oh I don't have any way out when your mm. heroes are like cool you cool. we'll see you on the other end of the publishing date and I was like mm. so I did it with their support with yeah. their
0: oh, wow man thinking about Portals from the first page of the book. You set up this video that you see of Buddy Guy and and Willie May, the meeting of the Chicago and the Alabama, Alabama, Alabama Blues, right? And you watching this video of their 1970 performance, and this portal opens up, and it feels like you're just pulled through, and pulled through the entire writing of this book. But what about that video? You know, was so captivating in, in how do you think A led to B, led to C led to this constellation and this whole story that you underwent in writing this book.
1: I think these are some of my favorite questions about the book so far. Um, Let's go. <laughs> yeah, I, I do want to say that. Like I'm like, oof, child, but who knew I was waiting to answer that? I didn't know. So I learned- <laughs> Because it was a portal, right? And I wouldn't have described it as such. But and I like that you say that the portal, like, was sustained, right? That the journey Mm -hmm. in a portal—that is great. You know, with me through the writing. Um, I want to say that it was 1970, and um, I knew that by that time. Oh no! Well, see, I was gonna say I knew that by that time she had been in the industry and she had been a performer for 30 years, but that's not true. I had no idea who the hell this woman was when I first saw that. Right. I'm thinking about it after the fact. Now I'm thinking about it in retrospect. Yeah, of course, this is she was 30 years in the game. She had these scars on her face. She was like comfortable in her skin. She had, you know, a 30 year relationship with the musicians, buddy guy and the others who were backing her. But that wasn't even what I knew. I just felt the force. I just felt this kind of I the, I think the way that I describe it in the book is a kind of like, describing her as a, like a matriarchal masculine force. I was like, how do you do that? Right. And you're not performing. Nobody is out. She wasn't performing gender. That's not what was happening. She was being who the hell she was called to be, who she was born to be. And the level of authenticity was only it was echoed by the conversation between her and the musicians. Right. Those quick looks, those silences, that trust, that collaboration, that telepathic, guitar based, harmonica based communication. Like I was like, who are these people? Right. And so, yeah, I think that 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 moment was just like I just got pulled in. And the backstory is that the University of Texas Press reached out to me and asked me to write about Prince. They asked me to write a book called Why Prince Matters, which, by the way, the book Why Willie May Thornton Matters is a part of a larger series um of biographies that the press wanted to kind of complicate the meaning of biography and they asked us to very specifically include personal narrative and a bit of lyrical analysis and maybe like a sociological analysis which was perfect because that is my work anyway like that's the Zora Neale Hurston influence anyway like that you know um autoethnographic work right and she also as in Hurston used and wrote about the blues, right? So I feel like I'm a part of that genealogy of black women writers thinking with their lives through the blues and through blues women or blues people to quote um, Amiri Baraka. But yeah, so I think that that performance just took me. She had on these like crystal drop earrings and this, you know, this, this hat that looked just like Patrice Lumumba or Winnie Mandela. I was like, and she's from where? you know, like this Alabama. So then I realized after the fact there was the word hound dog was nowhere near my consciousness. When I saw her for the first, I had no idea that this is the woman that kind of made us all hate Elvis, right? That she's that single line reference of like, oh, the first person who's saying, you know, hound dog was a black woman and and Elvis stole the show, which she absolutely did. I mean, I mean, he just reinforced what we know to be a kind of extension of white supremacy that rears itself or rears its head through the music industry and and through popular culture. But I wasn't even on that. And so that is part of what made me tell the story without driving that Elvis hound dog point home is that she was way larger than the small life we've created around that story of harm in her and Elvis. She was way larger. So it was my business to, use that portal to enter all the channels that make up her musical life.
2: Mm.
3: So something else I love that you do in framing Willie Mae Thornton on her own terms um, is make this distinction between uh, who you are and what you do um so in the case of queerness right I, I think you you take a very intentional uh refusal of just like labeling her any sort of which way which is the pattern that you had noticed so many other people doing right in terms of boxing her into a smaller story um but at the same time that you refuse to like say that oh like her identity is queer you also are very clear about how she queers as like as verb she queers the blues she queers like the american music industry um even with mothering too right that difference that distinction that you're making between mother as identity and what you do um i'm just really curious to hear you like flesh more of that uh distinction out like how you were able to discern that and why it
1: matters yeah, mothering as an identity versus a practice that anyone can take up, right? Queerness mm-hmm. less and queerness and less about an identity, but a practice that anyone can take up, right? So in that context, it makes me think about how Stevie Wonder kind of queered, you know, um, Motown music by adding synthesizers to his work in the early 70s, right? Like this queering, this taking what we know out of its normal context and celebrating, upholding and in fact innovating from the place of what is non-normal. Right. Right. And so she, I first want to state, never, I've never come across anything that says that she referred to herself as queer or lesbian or gay. So I don't call her that. You know, and so it's interesting that when people are talking about the book that that descriptor comes up that I wrote about, I wrote a book about a black queer woman. And I'm like, what do you guys mean by queer? Because I don't know who she loved and who she slept with. If that is what you mean by queer. And oftentimes I think that is what the limited understanding of queerness is. Right. It's like who, you know, it, mm-hmm. desire and who you sleep with and, and how mm-hmm. you present at times. And But I think for her, yeah, the like, It is about how unique she was and what it meant to show up in different places with that distinctive voice and perspective and her politics of refusal, which included like how she dressed, but also how she behaved and performed on stage and in the studio, like, you know, how she collected her her money at the end of the show. And there's there's some interesting moments in the book that I actually had a lot of fun writing about, which is like, um, one of those instances is like what happens when black people and money and emotions are involved. And so I reference big perm and big
0: Worm, yeah. and, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: and yeah, Friday yeah, <laughs> right? because you know how the way that she like really would be willing to fight for her pay or be willing to threaten people like big worm did, you know, smoky and, and ice cube or, and so like, it was an interesting thing. I mean, I feel like it's a reference that you kind of have to be there because it sounds a little wild. And so I want you guys to read it. But just know that it involves rollers and perms and Friday and, oh, yeah. oh. and pay- collection of payment <laughs> yeah. and, and how the emotionally charged collection of asking, having to, having to ask for what you are owed and having right. to ask when there's been an agreement right on when you would be paid. But anyway, so. I would say that that distinction is important because it harkens back to this idea of the history of the way that, bi- that biographies of Black people have been written by white men, right? That mm. there is oftentimes a focus on, you know, the genius of the person and they're their attributions and their kind of contributions to a genre and then some, some sociological history around the drama. That's funny. The genre, which is drama when it doesn't include a deep Mm. cultural, political, sociological, you know, reading of that person through a lens that honors their full humanity. Mm. Right. So That distinction of that line between Black performer and Black privacy or Black performer and Black private life is interesting to me because it's where one can find the humanity of of folks, right? So speaking of Beyonce,
2: Mm.
1: I think she is an important model for how I want to think about the distinction between performer and person, Um, and that is because... While there are millions of people around this world that are willing to pay their rent money on tickets or whatever it is, um, those people know very little about Beyonce's personal life beyond her music.
2: Mm. Yeah. I
1: mean, she is just the queen of black privacy. Yeah. I mean, you it- getting anything you are privileged that, that blue is on stage now and that she might show a picture of two or the twins again but you don't hear her anymore you don't hear from her she's not interviewing and prince and michael did a similar thing they showed up and yep. tried to like force that line and protect that mystique even that mystique is a kind of layer of protection and let's think about that layer of protection that wasn't afforded to a Whitney Houston. Mm. We cannot claim that she maintained that kind of life-saving Black privacy, mm-hmm. that in fact, her hyper-exposure was a part of her tragic death. And in fact, her daughter's death was a part of her mother's hyper-exposure. Right, And so I refuse to only read Willie Mae Thornton as Big Mama because in her story is the story of her grandparents who were enslaved in that story is the story of the ways in which migration happens and the patterns of black people's movement not just from the, no- the south to the north but from the south to different parts from one southern state and city to another that like sort of you know boomerang movement that we rarely talk about oftentimes we have a very linear way of understanding migration. And we call it the Great Migration. And it's like this one, you know, this one route track right from the South to the North. But Willie Mae's life because of her, you know, presentation and performance of Big Mama took us everywhere, right? It took us through the South. It took us to LA and to Texas and Southwest. It took us to London and to Germany, right? It, It took us to all these different places. Um, and so, in those places, a different person shows up. Though Willie Mae, I mean, you know, though Big Mama is the primary artist, a different person shows up when you look at what it took for her to move from Atlanta to Texas. What it took for her to, you know, find housing in California, right? And so, those stories—that cultural context—is important to me. Hmm. Sorry if that was a lo- that was no a- no no, no that, that, was, was,
3: that was that was that was perfect, perfect. that was perfect and um it's also very much flowing into another emergent question just because I'm thinking about, uh, one of your Instagram posts from 2021, actually where you shout out (laughs) Queen Latifah for refusing to ever like clarify her own like relationship with gender and sexuality and who she loves and desire and all of that. Um, and if I'm understanding correctly, you are already working on why Willie Mae Thornton matters in 2021. Yeah, so so I think it's really interesting hearing how you know you could not really know her as like as a discrete individual and yet know her through your own life and through the way that you appreciate black folks around you. Um but then it's like once you do start learning about her, then it completely transforms like how you see everyone else, right? Or everybody, right? And I think part of like why I love this book is that it's very much, for lack of a better term, like raising raising the dead, right? And like showing you how Willie May Thornton is actually like very much alive right now. Um there's like a resuscitation there. So how else do you see like Willie May Thornton's legacy today? Right. Like who who do you think is in her tradition, in her kind of like spirit as a blues woman, as someone who is larger than life and just, right, queering, right, any any of those kinds of, like, associations that you have with her? How do you see those playing out today?
1: Hmm. I mean, in the book, I do reference an interesting character. I was surprised that she came to me as being part of the, the lineage of these kind of, like, wayward blues women. And that's Monique, the comedian. I think that she is one of our contemporary wayward blues women in just in the mastery of her cursing, in, in the mastery of her like willingness to go up against these major figures, right? The Oprah's and the Tyler Perry's and the whoever's and to demand that money, to collect the money like Big Wormwood and like Willie Maywood, would, right? Is to, to be like, when you're messing with my money, mm-hmm. you're messing with my emotions, right? And so I'm gonna use my art to call you out, which is what Willie Mae did as well, right? That she would get on stage and like critique Ronald Reagan's policies. And I'm not talking about like a fully fleshed out, analytically sound. No, it was analytic, it was analytically sound, but not like a fully, you know, fleshed out layered reading, but a one that was so simplistic that it was undeniable. Like, for example, that, you know, uh, Ronald Reagan had declared war on social benefits. Right. And that that meant black folks were going to be suffering the most. And so Willie Mae says that as a part of one of her like opening acts. And so you or as a part of opening one of her acts. And so I think about Monique when I think about Willie Mae Thornton. You know, it's interesting because maybe even like a young M.A. Is it uh, young, MA or yeah. young, young M.A.? Yeah. I mean, that's an obvious reference just because of gender presentation and the gender Mm -hmm. performance. But I think it's more about how Young M.A. is interesting in that I believe that there are a lot, a lot of straight women or women who identify as straight that are like, oh, for some reason I'm taken. And the taken isn't just about, I don't think, the way that Young M.A. presents gender, but perhaps that confidence in doing something that Many people are unwilling to do, especially yeah, when she got
3: the sauce. She has the <laughs> I'm honest, I'm honest
1: yeah. I was over she got here. The sauce. Not, even, not even my type. I was like, hey, 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 You <laughs> <she's> sexy. Sign <laughs> your oh, no.
0: Listening to her like, whoa, she's saucy, yeah. yo. No, yeah. no, 100%. no
1: she's, she's, saucy, she's sexy, she's you know, mm. charismatic, she's talented, she dresses well, she has these braids, she get like what? You know, so I think of Willie Mae in that context of like, listen, Willie Mae would show up in a three piece suit with her cowboy boots and her cowboy hat. And I imagine that there were like women on those tours or in the audience who who found her to be striking and attractive, you know, like a young M.A. Um, I'm thinking of someone else. Um, Missy. Wow. Huh. You know what's interesting about Missy? Missy, you know what? Wow. I hadn't thought about Missy because I think that like Missy might be another person who specializes in the black private.
2: Mm, Like Mm -hmm. in a
1: way that I like, I'm not, you know, I make assumptions and I project onto what Missy may be into. (laughs) Like I might project that she is like, you know, represents a kind of queerness. But the truth is, yeah. So then, yeah, in that context, this is something that she has never said, but that a lot of people assume to be true. Right.
3: Yeah. Right. Right.
1: So, yeah, I think Missy is a total good reference. Yeah. Mm hmm. What about his Markie?
2: Oh, wow. Oh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know what? And I say,
1: Biz Markie because Markie, that, <laughs> that, that came from, that actually surprised me that I just said it, but I said it because the other thing about Willie Mae Thornton is that she was a fierce comedian.
2: Yes. Mm. Wow. A
1: fierce comedian, you know, and she and so she would just like say things that other folks would refuse to say or just to even be silly. You know, the silliness that black people are sometimes not afforded, just making fun of people on stage or making fun of her musicians, even though that was slightly serious. She would just like mask it in silliness to kind of soften the blow. But it just makes me think of the role of comedy and black musicians like like a dizzy galepsi who had a kind of sometimes uncomfortable silliness that this, some black folks read is doing a little bit too much like you mm-hmm. know bearing over to the to the like sort of shuffling side of things but i think that like willie may's silliness is in that category of like black performers like a Bismarcky. Mm.
0: Yeah. yeah no uh <laughs> i saw her performance with Aretha, um, the 1980-81, I feel like she she was so funny, even there sitting and just so theatrical, but in, not in a way that was out, outside of herself. Like she was clearly in her element. That was quite a performance that it reminded me, it's different, but uh, a lot of the one, I think it was at like the BET Awards of Michael and James Brown, sharing the stage it felt like that an earlier version you know um
1: oh, oh yeah, yeah 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 I, that. I, I don't know if you that. remember that
0: yeah that, oh, that's one of my that. favorite videos but oh
1: I love that I love that as an example right. of generational like torch passing or just yes. you know in just yes. an intergenerational exchange of like yeah of similar yeah absolutely let can I ask you all a question based on yeah, what you said yeah. So how often did you find yourself reading the book and then going to YouTube or wherever you're listening to music? Or Like, how engaged were you with the other text that
0: were referenced? That's that's a very involved question. (laughs) Yeah. Go ahead, Miles. I'm someone who just likes to sit and read a book as close to all the way through. But the first time that I was like, I have to look this up right now was when you talked about the saved album cover. And i was just like wow i really want to see what this even looks like sounds like um but it was saved because you know you said it was just your favorite work and that's later on in in the book but then i went back to watch everything else but it was it was really that and it's funny because uh we had daniel black um on of the show a few months ago. grew up in the church and when I was preparing for his show, I was listening to Old Happy Day like, a lot because he talked about it in his book. And uh, for her to cover it too, I thought her version was even better. Uh, so <laughs> honestly.
1: No, listen, what she doesn't, that saved album is mm-hmm. something else. It really is. I mean, it's just something else. And, it, and I love that it's the album that she was waiting to create waiting to produce and then you hear it and you would not put it in the category of blues you would not put it in the category per se of gospel or spirituals right like and yet it's the foundation and she takes that and she channels it through a different voice of hers that she's always held like she knew she wanted to do this album you know so yeah so you guys went and looked okay and yeah some- and
3: uh you know now that you uh, bringing up safe too reminded me that uh, also in the Dream Hampton conversation you were talking about that time frame of like seventy one to seventy two, and then I'm just realizing that you are also talking about twenty 2020 twenty to twenty twenty two. So it's so cool to see how you have these like these very clear almost like time frames as well. There they are their own like portals into a moment. So yeah, I don't know if if you saw that connection there in terms of even just the decades worth of time. Uh, but to your question. Yeah. I, um, I think hearing your story about growing up in MTV and videos really called me to question our own relationship with YouTube. Cause we also grew up with so many videos and cartoons and like, you know, reading proportionally was very small in terms of our media consumption relative to all the other things. And I feel like it's so because YouTube, YouTube is messy, right? And there's, there's so much out there now where I think we did have to go through that process of like, paring down and really identifying what the signal was like where we were resonating. Um, But I think after going through that process, and then now being almost reintroduced to video through the way that you like practice uh watching and listening and all of that like i i have a queue of videos now that like i can't wait to watch um i think we usually saw youtube binging as like something that we would do like when we were super tired and of course you go down like a rabbit hole and then may or may not feel like guilty about it um but i think that i am currently in the process of transforming the way i even like feel going on to youtube right where i'm like going on to youtube and looking up willie Mae thornton and as well like uh mahalia jackson rosetta thark like just just the presence of the people through video that we can find as well like tony morrison you know trying to find anything i can really just on on all these black folks that have been a part of our life but i've never been able to like really receive more of their movement and more of their like presence and personality um so i think that you know in the true spirit of like dj scholarship like you have us like trying to trying to dig through the crates in a completely new way um because because we were for sure trying to be super focused on like just books for a while but now we're like wait a second like there's so much here that we've already been tapped into like we just had a we had a block there
1: Mm -hmm. oh that's so great to hear yeah yeah it's so great to hear because my friend Sabela refers to YouTube in particular as the people's archive.
0: right?
1: Mm. like I'm telling you, it was YouTube that helped me write this book. So I want us all to be like using it as a major source. And I know that that then gets complicated in a university context. Right. In terms of being able to cite sources, because there were moments where I was like, oh, there's no source for this information. And I'm having to cite like I found this on Jackie's channel, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> but I found this I found this rare footage of Ray Charles on Jackie's channel, right? Like mm. I was calling museums and calling places like yo, there's a video where such and such, and they're like, Oh, you we don't know exactly what you and because that's not hey. and I was like, Oh my god. So I'm gonna have to reference. I saw this mm. on Jackie's YouTube channel. That becomes yeah. it is the the precarious, you know, the precarity (laughs) of the, you know. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Archive. But yeah, good. I'm glad. Like that's what I'm it it makes me feel good to know that you all were first of all reckoning with that. Isn't it, you know, like where you have to sometimes question where you are allowing yourself to learn. Mm -hmm. Like what happens if that learning is not coming from a book? Is it real? Is it, real <laughs> learning? Is, it, is it real learning <laughs> in the documentary this is the question right. i've been since 1993 1992 right hey, i am reading dad what you mean <laughs> right. you, of you, course i'm reading i'm
3: reading between the lines yeah, I'm, reading too. I'm reading
1: i'm reading chuck d's lyrics but also like <laughs> I'm, I'm i just sat here and watched the entire series of eyes on the prize And because of that, I am very clear about when Stokely Carmichael entered the SNCC movement and challenged the Christian Martin Luther King led nonviolent committee. I'm clear about like when Malcolm X left the Nation of Islam because I was Mm -hmm. watching documentaries. I was reading. I was reading these visual stories. I mean, what is a documentary but a sort of visual text? Like right. it's a nonfiction text.
3: Yeah. Yep.
1: I mean, I was reading.
3: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, something else too that I want to add is that uh after starting your book, listening to your, your talk with Dream Hampton, um, I also went into the iTunes or the Apple Music and Spotify profiles of yeah. Willie Mae Thornton, and they were infuriating, honestly. Um, um because yeah. For telling yeah, me so so this this is what's so wild, right? Is because I've seen her profile before, but it was like going through the portal of your book and that talk coming out on the other side. I go back to her profiles and I'm like, whoa, there's like eight things wrong with this, right? Because first of all, in in both of the profile photos, it's her in a dress, so I'm already like, whoa, like who told her, who who forced her, who paid her to do this? You know what I'm saying? And then they both name her like big mama Thornton, like you can spell, I spelled out Willie Mae Thornton in both of them. And then it was like, nah, it's actually big mama Thornton, not even including the first name, no, no quotes, nothing. And so then when you go to the, when you go to the album covers as well, she's in dresses, you know, like, or, or she's like more like backgrounded. I was like, what is happening here, yo? And like, it just felt so, uh, it felt so scary just how, how like little was there how how little like texture or richness to like the personality and the story that you had already been introducing us to was just like not there at all um the thing that got me the most though was apple music has a uh has a little bio on her and it was yeah that was that was the worst part i don't even want to get into it past that you can read it if you want to but like i was no, like no. whoa every single bit of this
1: loveless loveless yeah.
3: It was exactly all the things that you've been refusing, right? That you chose to refuse from the jump and still do. It was like all of those things just collapsed into two sentences where I was like, wow. Wow. Like I was just speechless from that.
1: Yeah. Like just the lack of care. Yep. The lack yep. of care and the presentation of her as a personless sound,
2: mm-hmm.
1: a personless mm. sound, you know? Yep. We, we sell this particular product which is music and here's the face of this particular sound and here are a few things she's saying hound dog and she's whatever right like yeah the carelessness and so that is why i was more generous <laughs> with the original biographer i certainly you know but I, I call him in because i'm like what do you mean your purpose is to prove that she's straight or, right. or or to protect her like heterosexuality because it's never been proven that she right, right. Like, like or the
3: thing about her son and stuff like that.
1: The mothering yeah. piece. Yeah. No, that was yeah, and reading while black and sentences that describe that, that sort of um disguise themselves as you know, like what how you have to go into reading as a black person and how a sentence may mess you up. And so I was like, What the hell do you mean? she had a son and she was, what? Can I have more context? And so, sorry, that's a a spoiler alert, but buy the book. It's in the first chapter. (laughs) That's all right.
0: Get the book right now. (laughs) Yeah, like
1: mothering the blues. But like, yeah, you guys have read the book closely and I am like super honored. This truly is one of my favorite interviews next to Dream. Dream and I, because we've been talking For years, like we have been friends for years. I just changed my ticket so that I can make sure to be at her birthday celebration in LA. Like, that is my my... point. And that's massive because she, alongside Bell Hooks and Greg Tate, I consider Dream Hampton to be a peer to both of those people. Um, Mm -hmm. Hampton has never written a single book, which goes back to my point. She is a filmmaker. No, it's not true that she has, she has ghost written books and she Mm -hmm. has a massive footprint of writing obviously for the source mm-hmm. required for, for village voice right like yes absolutely she goes wrote um or co-wrote jay-z's decoded and right like it's she's a writer but i also know that she is, is much more comfortable identifying as a filmmaker so to be to have been in conversation with her this week and then you all feels like an honor because you both are like yeah. You all, all of you read the book closely and we're having a real conversation about it. And it's an honor because it makes up for all the time I spent, like all the no's I had to get. Can you come to the, can't make it. Will you be at the, won't be there. You know, like can't come because I have to finish the story. I have edits. I have to, oh, I submit the damned manuscript and I'm like, yeah, I'm done. They're like, except for this whole manuscript you'll have to read again. I'm like, cool. Here it is. It's <laughs> freedom. They're like, that's cool. <laughs> Except for the last time when you have to read it before it goes to print. And I'm like, <laughs> I, the words, I was like, done.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: I'm like, That's cute. But I will say that I had a positive experience with the University of Texas Press. So shout out to them. Okay. Casey Cottrell. He was an amazing senior editor. Like, Um, And just had some really great, you know, I just had a good experience. I felt like they respected the story. There was no fighting about what I wanted to write about and how I wanted to talk about race or. So I think I'll end on that note and just say that it's Mm -hmm. a pleasure to be in conversation with you all and to hear how the book has landed on you both.
0: Yes. Seriously. It's been such a gift and honor to have you, you on Uh, just quick aside one of the lasting big quiet questions that i have left with from from this book too uh not even quite quiet questions, just things i want to be thinking about is what you say the global reach of the black south i think is such a incredible term especially along the lines of the share crop crop or soul you were talking about because literally from cotton and sugar exporting to england like mothering America and England as countries, the capitalism, <laughs> literally the whole world, yeah, the, whole the black world. South has, has been mothered by. And I think even the Caribbean influence in that South can, you know, through all genres of music, everything. So you've just really mm-hmm. expanded uh, my view on the connection be between all of all of these things um so just mm-hmm. grateful for that and um grateful that, that you could join us
1: thank you for lifting up that that statement yeah. and talking about the global reach of the south mm-hmm. and talking mm-hmm. about the south as a mother <laughs> seriously how, you know like and as a mother to the uk and to the u.s and and i mean the mother of the british invasion the mother of the blues like if you even if we just were to leave it to music like how The Black South has mothered the American sound and the British sound, right? So, thank you for that. Thank you for understanding that that work and that gesture and that intention and that commitment Mm -hmm. to name the South, because, like Andre three thousand said, and I was it Andre was a big boy who said the South has always had something to say. Of course, they had some of the first things to say. In fact, (laughs) like you know about black. American cultural thought that is the birthplace. That is the, the South is the motherland of black American cultural thought. Hmm. So, you know, so yes, Alabama, Louisiana, Texas, Florida, you know, like uh, Mississippi, like what, Georgia, what? Right. So Sun Ra is from Alabama, you know, little Richard and James Brown are from, you know, uh, Georgia. Nina Simone and Roberta Flack are from North Carolina, right? So like, hey, respect do. Mm-hmm. So thank you.
3: Thank you so much.
0: And thank you for listening to this episode of Real Ballers Read on Why Willie Mae Thornton Matters with Lene Denise we were so excited to have her in this conversation and be sure to order your copy from your local bookstore or library we will catch you in the next episode and have a great rest of your day